I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Pressbox Access. There's a cynicism baked into sports writing that comes from covering too many games and too many cities over too many years. I know I felt prey to it at times. That's not a problem for Jason Stark. He loves baseball, loves writing about it, loves talking about it, loves everything about the national pastime. Jason's endless enthusiasm has lit up every press box and every ballpark for more than 40 years. And his joy is combined with curiosity and top-notch journalism skills. That's why he's one of the most admired and respected baseball writers and broadcast analysts. You can't help but feel good about talking baseball with Jason Stark. You'll know from this conversation with him. Hey, Jason, welcome to our tavern. We're really looking forward to hearing some stories from you from your illustrious career. Todd, uh, I'm so honored that you invited me here. It's great to be hanging out with you. Thank you. Well, this show would not be complete without having Jason Stark on it. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite baseball writers of all time. Thank you. Well-respected. Uh, actually, I think you're the only guest we've had so far who has his own baseball card. <laughs> it's it's true, I do. Uh, Tops, a few years back, asked, asked me if I would be interested in being on one of their baseball cards and I, I'm still not exactly sure why they thought that was a good idea, but <laughs> I've since learned that some of my other baseball writing friends are also on these tops cards. And uh, so I've, I've come to accept that these things exist and uh, that's cool. Um, a lot of my friends and loved ones have a copy. <laughs> and, but here's the most amazing thing, because I've never been able to understand why any ordinary human would want my card. And then I go to Cooperstown induction weekend every summer and run into people walking along the street and they have a copy of my card. Some of them have eight, <laughs> 10, 12 copies of this card they, that they want me to sign. And why? I don't know, but I'm happy to sign when I run into them. And I have many copies. Yeah. If you'd like one, just let me know. Operators are standing well, please by. Please send one in the mail. I think I might put it in the spokes of my bike, but uh, <laughs> no, no, I kid, I kid, I kid. Wait, one thing about baseball cards. I have a friend who had a Mickey Mantle card from the 50s in excellent condition, except for the fact that his brother erased the eyeballs out of it with a pencil. Wow. Other than that. <laughs> <laughs> the key the key clause there was, other than that. <laughs> other than that. Well, we're going to treat you with a little more respect than that, Jason. Hey, man, 40 years plus of covering baseball, 21 at the Philly Inquirer, 17 at ESPN, now at Athletic. Uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame honored you in 2019. You okay. have seen a little bit of everything and really on all platforms, not just writing on TV, radio, you name it. Jason, you've been around the game. You've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of baseball, right? <laughs> I've seen a lot of stuff. If you hang around long enough, you see a lot of stuff. I actually think baseball's in a really good place now, Todd. Um, I think I wrote about this uh, just the other, a week or so ago in The Athletic, but the, the new rules have really put baseball uh, in a much 
better track, I think, moving forward because the game has rhythm now that it hasn't had in, in decades. Right. And um, I know people, like, it's amazing to me that there are some people out there that still complain about it. Uh, I, you know, I had somebody tweeted me the other day, yeah, just what I want to do is go to a Bruce Springsteen concert and have him announce, I, I, I'm going to play 25 minutes shorter tonight. But that's, see, that's not an accurate analogy because yeah, right, what's right. vanished from baseball is 24 minutes of dead time, of nothing yeah, happening. Guys standing around, right? A lot, there's a lot of standing around, a lot of mound visits, a lot of adjusting of the batting gloves 300 times a night that we don't get to see anymore. I, I guess people miss it. You know, I know beers, the beer vendors miss it, <laughs> but the game is a much more entertaining product with this, with with shift limits, and with incentives to to run more. It's just a better sport. Yeah, I agree with you. I was skeptical at the start, being a traditionalist, but I came around and I thought, you know what? The game is better. It is, it's more entertaining. Yeah. Like you said, there's a rhythm to it. And, you know, the other sports for years have been tweaking their rules to create a more entertaining sport. And I wasn't aware that the, the rules of baseball were handed down to Moses on a stone tablet. <laughs> but, but apparently they were because people were very offended that baseball would want to change anything about their perfect sport. But the, the, the games were dragging. And now right. you have all of the same stuff, the same action that you used to have, and actually more because there's more more base running, there's more first to thirds, there's more like ground balls are actually yeah, hits again. Everything's more compressed, it's sped up. Yeah, it just fit, it, it's a rhythm that was really important and was, it, it was starting to recede into the background. Um, and right. I'm so glad that they did what they did. Well, if Jason Stark likes the new rules, I, I say we all should like the new rules because Lord <laughs> oh, knows yeah. you've seen enough baseball to know what is good and what is bad. Uh, you're well known, Jason, for digging up odd, obscure nuggets of information. I am going to start this with a little nugget that I have found. <laughs> okay. Okay, right? Yeah. Is it true that Philly's reliever Dickie Knowles once tried to punch you? That is true. <laughs> okay, so yeah, this all right, is actually, all right. Well, we want to hear the story. Right, this, this is the baseball okay, story this, we need to hear. This is actually uh, this is a good story, and I, I'm going to tell it not from the perspective of how I felt at the time, 1980 something or other, covering the Phillies, but the epilogue version. Now, Dickie Knowles was a relief pitcher with the Phillies back in the 1980s, right? And um, I, I was having some problems. <laughs> with some of the players on that team. He was one of them. So one night he pitches. A bunch of us are standing around his locker asking questions. And when I ask a question, he ignores it. Doesn't answer it, pretends he didn't hear it. So now a minute later, I ask, I can't remember if it was the same question or another question. And once again, he ignores me, acts like I'm not there. And, and so I said to him, what, what's your problem? Now, you, now that, all of a sudden I exist. He looks, right, looks me right in the eye and he goes, what's your bleeping problem? I said, I don't have a problem. I just like to know why you're not answering my questions. And he says, I'm not answering your questions because I, don't, I haven't been talking to you all year. I said, that's not true. You talked to me last week. He said, nope, I haven't talked to you all bleeping year. And I looked at him and I said, you're nuts. And 
bam, like he came at me through a punch. I like, really? I leaned out of the way and now all hell breaks loose. You know, like there's other players around and they grab him and like, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's quite a scene here in the Phillies <laughs> clubhouse. And, uh, you know, order was restored. Uh, you know, Dickie Knowles got traded. <laughs> Life went on. And it was just a strange little episode for somebody like me who I get along with people. But, you know, when you cover a baseball team, you write stuff, you ask stuff, you say stuff, and some people take it the wrong way. And Dickie was gone through some stuff of his own at that period of his life. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so that's the story from that moment in time. So I tell this story on MLB Network. The next spring training, uh, my travels take me through Clearwater, Florida. Okay, and uh, this is like 2018. So this is 2000. Or? This is 2019 19. now. Spring training. Okay, 2019. And Dickie Knowles now works for the Phillies, and he helps people who are going through stuff, uh, who have alcohol issues, who have substance issues, who have um, mental health issues. That's what he does. He helps people, but that was not him at that time. So he sees me, and he comes walking across the field, and he says, "Hey, I need to ask you something." I said, yeah. He said, did I once throw a punch at you? (laughs) And I said, Dickie, I I, I hate to tell you, but yes, you did. And so I tell him this story very briefly. And he goes, wow. He said, I don't remember any of that. But if I did that, I am so sorry. Um, I was a different person then than I am now. I was very troubled then. Uh, much different than I am now. And you're a great guy. You're a great writer. And if I did that to you, I am so sorry. And so that, wow. like, that's the perspective with which I now view that moment in my life. But I didn't view it that way for a long time. Because <laughs> oh, I never yeah, had that happen while, before. Right? No, I, I by don't... the way, by the way, did you get a punch in at all? I had no interest in throwing a punch. That's not what I should be doing. It's not what he should have been doing either. <laughs> I, I'm a, but as writers, we always say we get the last word. Make make peace, man. That's that's what that's what I try to do. That's right. Well, that that image of you and and Dickie Knowles nearly coming to blows in the clubhouse is really something that a lot of fans don't see or hear about much, and it probably isn't what you thought baseball writing was going to be when you were a kid growing up in Philly. Because really, at age nine or ten, you were already thinking, "I want to be a sports writer." Right? That, that, that's exactly right. Uh, I, you know, I'm doing a thing that I've always wanted to do since I was old enough to dream about doing anything. And I recognize that doesn't happen to many people in life. But uh, I mentioned this in my Hall of Fame speech. But on my wall, of my office, like right over there, I'm pointing. Uh, there's a photo of my sister and me walking home from school. Uh, She was nine. I was 10. I'm pretty sure, right? And um, on the back, or underneath it, I'm sorry, there is a little composition that she wrote for her, it was, she was in fourth grade at the time for school. And it essentially says, if you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I was 10 then. I was 10, right? (laughs) And I didn't know then that I was going to wind up doing this in my lifetime, but I did have a love of baseball. And even then, Uh, my mother was a writer. 
June Stark. That's right. That's right. Uh, yes, was June, a, she was, June Stark was a was a journalist at the Philadelphia Record. Right. She was a wonderful writer. She worked at the Philadelphia Record until they went out of business. She knew Red Smith. You know, uh, he worked there for a while. And then she embarked on life as a freelance writer. And so she had a, you know, she and my dad had a lot of writer friends. Hey. And somehow she and those people infused this love of writing in me. She, you know, my mother read two newspapers cover to cover every day of her life. And if she ever saw a story, especially in the sports section, that she thought was great, she would make sure that I read it. And so somehow I had this dream when I was a really little kid that covering baseball would be such a cool thing to do. And Todd, this is a true story. All right, I would go to games as a kid with my binoculars, not to train them on the field, but to look at the press box and try to figure out what the heck everybody was doing up there. Really? <laughs> I mean, I was just really intrigued by that, that whole scene. And so it's what I wanted to do. And somehow this happened to me in my actual life. It's crazy, Amazing, isn't it? right? Yeah. Well, you used to write letters to the Philadelphia Daily News, right? To well, Stan Hockman? Stan Hockman. I, you know, I, I wrote letters to a, a few of the great sports writers that I read growing up in Philadelphia, but Stan Hockman was the guy who actually answered me. You know, I was a, I was a teenager, and I, as I said, I was really interested in sports writing, baseball writing especially, and I would ask him questions about the business, and he would write back, and it left such an impression on me. So... When I have students, kids who want to grow up and do this thing that I got to do, I always try to answer back and help. And, you know, I actually had an exchange with a guy last week, uh, same mm -hmm. sort of thing. But uh, my, my greatest protege story ever is, I'm sure you know who Tyler Kepner is. Uh, he oh, yes. writes for The right. Athletic now. He, he was the lead baseball writer for many years at the New York Times. You know, just a, such a, a talented guy and such a great person and good friend of mine now. But, you know, he was 13, 14 years old and he wrote to me and he said, hey, my brother and I put out this magazine called the KP Baseball Monthly. And I would love to nice. send you a couple copies. And so I wrote nice. back and said, yeah, sure. <laughs> do that. So I, you know, I read the, uh, this KP Baseball Monthly and I said, oh my God, this kid at 14 years old, he could, he could cover baseball right now for any publication in America. And so I wrote back and told him that and told him what the, what the life of a baseball writer was like but really tried to encourage him that this was something he was good at and he should pursue this. And, you know, the, the rest is history. You know, his career yeah, he is... Be he became one of the really, really great baseball writers of his era and still doing great work at the Athletic. He's great. But here's, the, here's another epilogue moment. Uh, again, that same winner that I, I was honored by the baseball writers, you know, in the, and knew I was going to be in the writer's wing of the hall of fame. One of the things that comes with that is I got invited to the New York baseball writers dinner. It's an incredible mm -hmm. event every January sat on the dais, got to speak. 
and I was introduced by Tyler Kettner. Oh, and wow. learned cool. that night that his mother saved that letter I wrote to oh, him. Oh, that's great. And he quoted from it. And uh, it, it's, I, you know, it's just a surreal moment in my life. Uh, you know, I hope, I hope everybody has something like that happen to them where somebody that we helped along the way not only is thankful for it and remembers it, but saved the, the first thing that that person wrote to you <laughs> and can remind you of it. Wow. That's fantastic. What a great story. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. So you were a young kid dreaming of being a baseball writer. And then after, after you graduated from Syracuse and worked at the Providence Journal, the Philadelphia Inquirer calls you and wants you to now cover baseball as a beat, cover the Phillies in your hometown of Philadelphia. And that's what gets us back to Dickie Knowles. <laughs> so you start your career right. walking into, this is a great Phillies team, you know, great team. They ended up winning the World Series a year later. But you're a young writer walking in as a beat reporter. What was that like uh, starting your career out? Well, that was a tough group. <laughs> you, know, it, you know, it was extremely memorable to cover those Phillies teams. It was, you know, I walked in in the middle of what some people still think was the greatest era ever of Phillies baseball. I mean, um, they built a team that went to the postseason six times in eight years. Could have won the World Series every one of those years. Did win it once, first time in the history of the franchise. Um, but there were big names, big personalities, big stars. And um, <laughs> the greatest pitcher in Philly's history was on that team, Steve Carlton. Steve Carlton. And yeah. he didn't talk to me because he didn't talk to anybody. And, right. you know, I've... You know, I've learned this along the way, but the culture, the culture of any team is established by its best players and the way they act and the way they go about it. And because the, the best pitcher on the team, future Hall of Famer, one of the, you know, one of the greatest pitchers of, of, in the history of baseball, certainly left-handed pitchers, because he didn't talk to us, because he didn't say hello to us, because he never had time for us, uh, it empowered other people in the room to treat us that way, <laughs> you know? And it, so it was hard every day, every day. Why didn't Carlton talk, by the way? This went back way, way, way before me, but just the short version is he got into a dispute with Bill Conlon, another Hall of Fame baseball writer, um, again, way before I arrived. Um, he had gone from 27 and 10 for a terrible team in 1972 to losing 20 games in 1973. And I don't know all the specifics, but Bill Conlon wrote some stuff, reported some stuff, said some stuff about him, and he just shut off our whole profession. And hey, when I run into him now, he wants to talk. It's amazing oh, how yeah, that right. happens. Yeah, you know? now, now he's got things to say. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but that again, that that was a very difficult team to cover. And I, I honestly believe that it started with him, even though there were there were great personalities and some great guys on that team. But the year they won right. the World Series, I mean, 
seriously, half the clubhouse wasn't talking to any of us. Really? I mean, this is the team of Mike Schmidt and Greg Lozinski and Bake McBride, Larry Boa. I mean, you got just real big, big time players. Yeah. And they don't want to deal with any of you guys. <laughs> yeah, again, it's had that, you know, some of it, I, I, here, here's what I've learned, okay? And I tell this to, to my fellow writers all the time when they run into these moments is for the most part, it's not personal. It's not them and you. It's, it, it represents what we do for a living. And the fact that we're always there mm-hmm. every day for seven months, eight months. And it, if you, I mean, if you can imagine being around the same people every single day for all those months, you're not married to them, you're not related to them. You know, you didn't ask them to be there. <laughs> and, you know, you have good days, but you also have some bad days. And when you have bad days, they tell the world all about it. You can understand how this could happen. You know, so that, that's the, that really is the, the general explanation for why this happens in our profession. You know, I now, I, I'm at a different stage of my career and I, I've built incredible relationships with so many people including players who I covered back then that I had a lot of issues with, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's the way we should go about life. But stuff happens along the way and it's hard and it's hard to know how to handle it and keep moving forward. And I would hope if you read what I wrote about those teams, about those players, you would never know that I was going through what I was going through. Uh, I would hope that uh, because that's the way it ought to be done in my world. You talked about setting the tone and how Carlton never talked. Their manager, Dallas Green, now he would talk. And you're a young reporter <laughs> learning how to navigate a, a hostile clubhouse. What did you learn as a young reporter dealing with Dallas Green? Well, you know, I, I covered a lot of amazing managers in my time. I don't think any of them was as thoughtful, as opinionated, as honest, as willing to express his thoughts about everything, including the players, as Dallas Green. And he, you know, he left uh, an impression on me that stays with me even now. Uh, he, he's no longer with us, but we, we stayed in touch for many years. And one of the reasons is his greatest tirade was directed at me. So this was 1981. Uh, Dallas has been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a really, really short time. You know, I'm just a young guy covering baseball. But Dallas and I, we, we had a good relationship. And one of the things that I could do was diffuse the tension sometimes in the room by making him laugh, making him smile. And so 1981, there was a strike. You know, the players went on strike for two months. Yeah, uh, split the season in half. They split yeah. the season in half. And so the Phillies had won the World Series the previous year. They were playing fantastic baseball when the strike hit. And then they came back. Some guys were in shape. Some guys weren't in very good shape. Uh, baseball decided it was going to change the rules for this just this one season only so that if your team was in first place when the strike hit in June, you were already guaranteed you were going to the playoffs. And then they were going to play this second half uh, 
for the other slot in the division series. So he had a split season and there was nothing Dallas was more aggravated about than the split season because his team had nothing to play for. Okay. And they already had guaranteed a spot. They were guaranteed so a spot. And so he yeah. was just in a mood. And then the other part of this is they came back. It was clear that some guys hadn't been doing a whole lot because they were on strike. And at least they thought the pitchers were, at least it had been throwing and were in decent shape and the pitchers were ahead of the hitters. So now the, the season resumes. The St. Louis Cardinals come into Philadelphia and they beat the crap out of the Phillies three games in a row. I can't remember all the scores off the top of my head. There was like 7-1 one night, 8-2 one night, 9-3 the third night. And we go, we, in those days, the, the post-game manager sessions were not a TV show. You know, you actually would go sit in the manager's office. So we walk in, we take one look at Dallas and it's written all over his face. Uh, you know, he just was, he was in one of those moods. And so nobody would ask a question. Nobody. So Todd, if you've been taking notes, you knew I was the guy who could diffuse the tension, right? That was my role. <laughs> so I said to him, do you think this means the pitchers aren't ahead of the hitters anymore? <laughs> and he looked right at me and he said, bleep you, Jason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sick and bleeping, tired of that bleep. And so that began a four and a half minute rant, Todd. Four and a half minutes. Really? And he used that F-bomb word or some variation of it. I, I, if, I, if I remember right, it was something like 23 times <laughs> during, the course, during the course of the rant. <laughs> well, the, the audio tape exists, so you can go back and look at it. Uh, listen to it. And... uh so it included some really memorable, just rant type stuff, uh, including this. This was this is one I've committed to memory. He said, "I want bleeping stopped. All the bleeping bull bleep about this bleeping split bleeping season. <laughs> I, I I can't do anything about that." And. It was, it was amazing. The whole thing was amazing. <laughs> and so once he started to get it out, uh, like it became clear to me, I, somebody had to ask a question because this is what he needed to do. Because at right. one point, right, he walked out of his office and into the clubhouse and looked around to make sure the players were listening. <laughs> okay. And now he, he comes back and he continues the rant and he's like, he's like kind of winking at me. In the middle of this. So I oh, knew. Performance okay, so, art. So I was putting on a good show I, for the team. I, I, huh? So I realized what it was. But it would be, became very famous at the time. And so it became like our little thing that we shared. Um, so now the season, as the season goes on, you know, you have these sessions with the manager every day, before the game, after the game. And so I noticed, we're, we're now deep into September, that every day, he's trying to get me to ask another question like this. You know, he's like egging me on. So I said to him at one point, I don't know what you're up to, but I'm like, I already have one audio tape 
that said that goes bleep you, Jason. I don't need another one. Okay, so I don't know what you're up to, but I, you're not going to get me to do that. So now, uh, a guy named Ralph Bernstein used to cover the Phillies, not all the Philadelphia teams, for the Associated Press, and he falls into Dallas's trap, and he asks him something or other, and Dallas goes. Come on, Ralph. That's worse than that bleeping question Jason asked. And Ralph <laughs> falls right into the trap and he says, what question was that? <laughs> and so Dallas gets a big smile on his face. He holds up a finger. See what I'm doing? And he goes, one second. So now he's like rummaging through his desk and he reaches into the bottom drawer of his desk and he grabs something and he fires it across his office at me. And I catch it and I open it up and it's a t-shirt. And it says... Bleep you, Jason, on it. Except it didn't say bleep. Nice. <laughs> what a like, what a great item, right? So I still have the shirt. Don't Are you really? You still have the F you, Jason? Do shirt? not tell my wife, but I still have the shirt. And when I would like, when I would see him for the rest of his life, he would always laugh at me and say, "Still got that shirt?" <laughs> and so, like, eventually. Dallas wrote uh, a book, an autobiography. Um, and he asked me if I would be the co-author. And I, I was not permitted by ESPN at the time to do that, but I was permitted to write the forward. So in the forward, I told the whole story of the rant. <laughs> and he told me once, the forward's better than the whole freaking book. <laughs> but we had, you know, we had a we we really had a wonderful relationship, uh, and because we shared the rant moment, uh, that just made it richer. I think that T-shirt should be sent to Cooperstown right now, Jason. <laughs> It'll never be displayed. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but it, they, you might need to fumigate it a little bit too. Well, you learned a lot of lessons as a young reporter on the beat. You know, in a tough clubhouse, a talented team, but a lot of big personalities to deal with. And then you moved into national baseball writing. You know, the Philadelphia Inquirer had you start covering the sport in 1983, and you created the Baseball Week in Review column. The column actually existed for a year before I got off the Phillies beat and became the national baseball writer. And it was just basically a, a, a wrap-up of the week in baseball. And so I told my sports editor, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I got other ideas. And so, you know, what, what you read now uh, uh, on The Athletic, my Weird and Wild column, mm -hmm. um, which is as a quite the cult following, that's really kind of what this column was back in the day. It started in the uh, mid-'80s. And I, I don't know exactly why my brain worked that way or why it still works this way, but... You know, I did grow up in Philadelphia reading the great sports writers in, in my town and the, the greatest, funniest, you know, smartest, most opinionated uh, sports writers in America. And they were hilarious. And the stuff they found to write about was so entertaining. And the stuff they were able to get people to say... Uh, constantly made me laugh and made me wonder, I wonder what question they asked to get that quote. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know? And so, <laughs> I, you know, I always, I, I always aspired to make my columns 
funny and entertaining wherever possible. And to try to unearth little tidbits uh, of info that people didn't know. And, you know, they, my mom always told me, uh, you should write a book and call it, I never saw that before. <laughs> so That'd be great. I never, I never wrote that book, but I've been writing it <laughs> in a lot, of, a lot of columns I've written through the years. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the big influences on me when I decided I want to write about baseball was Peter Gammons. All right. You know, I used exactly. to subscribe to the Boston Globe by mail, like six days later, but just to read Peter's Sunday comp, baseball column in the Boston Globe. And, you know, Peter's now one of my, my, one of my best friends on earth, um, but, but he really invented modern baseball writing. And one of the things that he did in every column was he had a little section right in the middle of the column of just funny stuff, stats that made you go, whoa. <laughs> and it, you know, eventually when I started writing baseball in Philadelphia and Peter reached out to me because he thought I was really talented, um, or so he claimed, <laughs> okay, we would, we would brainstorm a lot of these things. But I, I'm always looking at baseball and asking that question. When's the last time that happened? Right. I never saw that before because that's every day in baseball. So between that and trying to make people laugh and trying to get players to say funny stuff, that was what the Baseball Week in Review became. And it's led to, all these years later, the weird and wild column in The Athletic. And it's just amazing that, that people continue to let me do this. I don't know why. Well, I think it, what it does is it shows like your endless curiosity but I'm curious about this. You're, you started doing this in the 80s. No internet. You know, the world's so different. I mean, when you think about being a yeah. baseball writer in the 80s, how in the heck did you find out this little information? I think Tim Kirchian said you guys used to like talk all the time on like weekly chats. We did. We would, you know, um, I'd write that column on Friday. Well, it depended. It ran on Tuesdays for a while, then it ran on Sundays. But Tim and I would talk every Friday and just try to brainstorm because our, our brains work very much the same way. And so it's so much easier to, to research stuff now than, there was, than it was then between baseball reference and retro sheet and fan graphs and all the people who are tweeting all this cool stuff all the time, Xing it, posting it, whatever it is now. Um, but back then it was much harder. You know, I, Tim and I both used to keep three different day-by-day -day books, <laughs> you know, just to make sure we paid attention every day. And- What do you mean by a day-by-day -day book? Uh, okay, the, I, I have a book that I still keep on how every team did every day, you know? So I know who was the winning pitcher, who was the losing pitcher, who got the save, who had a homer, uh, where they are in the standings, if they lost 10 in a row, if they won five in a row, whatever. Just so I'm paying You're like attention. like the monks who used to write the Bible <laughs> longhand. What is this? I know, I know people think we're nuts, but it's a thing to make me pay attention to every team every day. It's just really easy to not notice what the Royals have done the last week. You know, but if, if you have to write it down in a book, you, you, you know, you notice. And Tim, Tim and I both used to keep uh, a book that was what every starting pitcher for every team did every day. Oh, and, come on. <laughs> and that's not all. With, uh, That's the, mental. The, the most, yeah. But again, it makes you pay attention. You know, like when, you, when you're on live TV and somebody asks you about the Tigers rotation and you've been writing it down in a book every day, you know, you know what's been going on. You know, this guy's pitching, well, that guy stinks. Uh, 
So that was the, that was the reason for that. And then what we also did for a long time, him much longer time than me, he's way more famous than this than me, is we kept a box score book. And so we would paste all the box scores, cut them out of the newspaper every day and, and, and paste them into a notebook every day. Yeah, so Tim was that, on our show and he talked about that. that right. That he had like years and years and years of these box scores. Years and years. Right. And uh, they should send them to the Hall of Fame. And, you know, at, at a certain point, I said, wait a second. <laughs> All of these box scores are online. What am I doing? And I stopped. But Tim was still driving all over town trying to find the late edition of the newspaper, right? So he, <laughs> he could get every box score and paste it into his book. See, the, the, the thinking was, boy, Tony Gwynn seems like he's hot. And if you've been pasting the box scores into your notebook, you can go back and say, oh my God, Tony Gwynn is 20 for his last 38, you know, or right, whatever. Right. Or this guy was two for his last 48, or whatever. So we could look up a lot of stuff that now is so much easier to find. And the Boxcar book was our secret. But the goofiest thing that we ever did um, was sometimes we'd have this idea for... Like this, like this guy is having a year that nobody could ever have had. Um, I wonder how rare it is. Now, with baseball reference, with uh, Stathead. Elias can, and everybody you can, else. You just with look it right With up. Elias, with stats. You, somebody will look it up for you, or right. you can look it up in a minute. Once upon a time, it was harder. And so Tim and I would do this thing where we would take a trip through the encyclopedia. You know, the big, thick oh, baseball yeah. encyclopedia? Right. Year, you know, every year, every, every player's stats would be in there. And there was a version of it called the Neft and Cone paperback edition. And rather than be organized by player, it was organized by team and by season. And so we'd say, all right, how are we going to find this? Tell you what, I'll look up 1900 to 1950, and you can take 1951 to 1997, <laughs> like whatever. And so you know, you'd, be, you'd be sitting there watching games at night, thumbing through this book, you know, going year by year by year by year, looking for anybody who did this thing. And But sometimes Tim wasn't that interested. It was a Phillies kind of thing. So I don't know if you remember this guy, Von Hayes, who used oh, yeah. to play for the right. Phillies, played for the, the Cleveland Indians back in the day and got traded to the Phillies for five players. Mm-hmm. This is his claim to fame. Um, so Von Hayes was a really good player and on, then all of a sudden, he was going through this season, whatever year it was, um, and he had no home runs, none. And we're in September. And I thought nobody could ever have hit, whatever it was, 23 homers one year, and then played every day the next year and hit none. And so I thought, how am I going to find this? So I called my friend Steve Hurt, then the, he was then running the Elias Sports Bureau pretty much, and said, hey, Steve, I have this idea for this note. I know it's really rare. Is that something you could look up for me? And he said, I have to tell you, that'd be a pretty involved program. So we'd have to charge you for it. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, how much would you charge me? Maybe I could get my editor to pay for it. And so he, he asked his people and he came back to me. And he, I can't remember what the price was, but it would be, I think it'd be, it'd be $2,000. I said, all right, I doubt they're going to pay that. Yeah, but I don't think so. I, I, so I'll, I'll ask my sports editor. And he said, you want me to pay the Elias Sports Bureau, 
$2,000 for what would essentially be four sentences in your column. I don't think that'd be a good use of $2,000. So I went back to Steve and I said, they, they won't pay that. So I guess I'm gonna have to figure out some way to look it up myself. And he said, All right, I'll tell you what, if you try to look it up, call me when you're done and I'll at least tell you if you're right. Oh, <laughs> okay. okay. So, so did you look so, it up? So then this began a solo trip through the encyclopedia. And so what I would have to do is I'd go through these teams and I'd look for a player who had 500 bats and no homers. And then I'd have to look up by hand. What did he do the year before? How many did he hit the year before? So I, I'm trying to find somebody who hit 20 homers the year before and then hit none. So I go, you know, 1900 to 1922 one night. And then I'd go 1923 to 1948 the next night. Then I go 1940. So I kept doing this like a little at a time because it's the only way to do it, right? So now I get all the way through the entire encyclopedia. I can't find anybody. So I'm sure I missed somebody along the way. So I call Steve up and I said, Steve, this is crazy, but I just went through the whole encyclopedia. I can't find anybody who did this. And he said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so then that became the note but that's how like before all the modern tools this is how Tim Kirkshire and I used to look up this stuff that's tremendous that's tremendous the diligence the curiosity and the humor of all this I mean the fact yeah. that you were like on a daily basis bringing that type of energy to the what is it a grind <laughs> of a beat just yeah. blows Tim my mind Tim and I joke about this all the time, but just sometimes you have to know. You have to know. You, it's in your head. You have to know. And we, that still fuels both of us to this day after all these years. And I, hey, I should tell you, just to do the weird and wild column, um, it still takes tremendous discipline every day to know what happened in baseball the day before. And so, you know, I, I wake up in the morning and I hit the stationary bike and I watch video of all the games from the night before and go, you know, I have my iPad on the bike and I'm thumbing through the internet, looking up stuff. And I have a, I keep a daily logbook of things that interest me, not just for that column, but for all kinds of stuff that I do. But that becomes part of my daily routine is knowing what happened in baseball every day. When you think about it, it's kind of similar to the great players routine. Like they have things that they do to get themselves ready to go out there and do things that we've never seen before. You know, here's the thing. I, I've written about this um, and talked about it a lot is to, to, be, to be a great player. What separates the great players from everyone else is the ability to play with focus and energy every day. Um, and it's it's a it's a fascinating topic. I once I once wrote a big piece about it. Talked to Derek Jeter, talked to Chase Utley, talked to a couple of managers, talked to Johnny Damon. Wrote this piece, and um, the general manager of the Oklahoma City Thunder, Sam Presti, called me out of the blue, and he said, "I just want you to know. I know we've never met. I love that column, and I think it applies to every sport. And I have emailed it to." I forget how many hundreds of people because it's a lesson to all of us is how, you know, how we should be going about the business of trying to be great. Um, but I think we can apply it to all of our lives. You know, if you really want to be good at something, it takes daily focus and energy and, and wanting to be great at it. And 
I'm not Derek Jeter. I'm not Jason Utley. I'm not Johnny Damon. I'm not any of those people. You know, I'm just doing what I do, trying to have fun and be good at it. But it does take some daily attention to detail, I think, to be good at anything in life. Well, I think that's so true. And that's certainly why you helped along with Gammons and some of these other guys basically create how to cover baseball on a daily basis, at least during the, you know, the tenure of my 30-year career. And um, that's why you've been honored by the Hall of Fame. The baseball writers, uh, you know, gave you the Spink Award for career achievement. And you were there at Cooperstown because of that type of daily energy, curiosity, diligence. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. You know, Peter Gammons is in a different class than all of us. Uh, Peter invented everything. (laughs) Everything that any of us do now in modern baseball writing, Peter did it first and he did it best. (laughs) And we're just, we're just riding his coattails. Uh, And I, honestly, if you haven't read vintage Peter Gammons from back in the day, Boston Globe, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, make it a point. It was just an amazing ability to take things from all over the field, all over the world, all over the, the modern culture, music, pop culture, and just fire it into baseball columns. Um, it, was a, it was a gift that Peter had, and we all saw what was possible because he saw what was possible. That's great. That's a great tribute, and I think it's so true. So true. Jason, one of the things that your column and your reporting and your writing and, and your analysis on TV and radio has always been known for is, is finding like oddball characters. And I'm curious about the idea of who was the craziest, funniest, oddest character that you recall dealing with throughout your years of covering <laughs> baseball? Yeah, I don't know if I would, if I could say just one, you know, but I can tell you that even now when I walk into a clubhouse, I always ask, who's the funniest guy in the room? Because <laughs> you know, that's an important thing to know, who's the funniest guy in the room. And, uh, you know, my, I, I co-host the Starkville podcast with Doug Glanville, and Doug Glanville was certainly, he, he wasn't crazy, but he's brilliant and hilarious. And, you know, he's the only player I ever talked to who used the, the phrase time, space, continuum <laughs> to describe a, a rainy week, <laughs> you know? And so I could go to Doug with any idea and he could turn it into something brilliant. Um, Jim Deshays is the broadcast voice of the Cubs now, but got to know him when he was a player. And he's just one of those hilarious people could always make you laugh. And I got to know him through Larry Anderson, who's now one of the voices of the Phillies, but was a longtime relief pitcher, just a goofy, hilarious person who could make you laugh on virtually any topic. When I was a really young writer. The Phillies had a guy named Don Carmen, who mm-hmm. I'm still in touch with. And Don Carmen was so funny. He started his career by going 0 for 54 at the plate, which he refers to his tri- to his like his tribute to Johnny Vandermeer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we could always laugh about his hitting exploits. But he also he had a you know, he, he decided one day he was going to come up with a list of all the greatest cliches that players say. And then he was going to print them up and he'd have a list. 
And after the game, he was going to check all the ones that applied to that game, and he would hand them out to us as we walked out the door. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With that said, what what are the greatest cliches from your perspective as a writer? Well, just right. It's like it's right at a bull dorm. Uh, you know, uh, we're we're go- we're 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 playing these one at a time. Yeah, you don't want to get too high. You don't want to get too low. You know what? You know how they go. You know, he had a whole he had like fifty of them. They were tremendous. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to I'm going trying to go way back here. Uh, I always liked Andy Van. And I was going to mention. I was going to mention Andy because Andy was another guy. He would just he just always had a line. Um, back when in the '90s, right? So Andy played for the Pirates, and Lenny Dicer was the center fielder for the Phillies. And Lenny would, we would just slobber tobacco juice all over the grass or the turf in center field. Uh, and Andy would have to go out there the next half inning. And he told me one night, like, this isn't right that I have to spend all those hours standing there. It's a toxic waste dump. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes the characters aren't even directly involved with baseball. You once found somebody I wanted to ask you about, the Frenchman who lived on Waveland Avenue outside of Wrigley Field. Right. Okay, here's the story here. Um, Sammy Sosa hits a home run off Paul Wilson of the Mets. Remember him? And the ball flies over the famous left field bleachers and clears the street in Waveland Avenue and goes through the window up and up apartment across the street, one of those buildings across the street from Wrigley Field. And there's this famous video of the ball breaking the window of this apartment. And so what do you think somebody like me would say at that moment? Who lives there? <laughs> who lives in that place? <laughs> exactly. I got I to gotta find the guy who lives in that apartment. So it took me a while. I had some friends in Chicago who kind of helped, but eventually they get me the name and phone number of the of the person who lives in the apartment, and it's a guy from France named Philippe Guichot. Okay, so uh, he, I call and I call and I call, and finally he answers, and I said, Philippe, it's Jason Stark. I write a humorous baseball column at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I wanted to ask you about this this home run, and so he told me that he came home from work. And there was this baseball lying in the middle of the, his floor with broken glass. So he didn't understand how this could have happened. And I said, right. Philippe, when you were thinking about moving into the apartment, you didn't notice that big field <laughs> across the street? And he said, oh, I knew that there was a field across the street. I just never knew that the baseballs would ever leave the field. (laughs) That was kind of his signature line, but he's another guy I stayed in touch with for quite a while and mentioned him in my Hall of Fame speech. It's just just an incredibly amusing moment. And if I ever write my life and times, that's going to be in there. Promise you that. (laughs) Sometimes it's not always amusing. Sometimes it's going to be a moment that just makes our jaws drop. And we end up saying to ourselves, I don't believe I saw that. You have seen a lot in baseball. As a journalist, is there a moment that still sticks with you as being the one above all? I mean, that's tough. I've seen a lot of stuff. I remember once reading a book on the World Series and going through the forward, and they were mentioning all these 
amazing moments in World Series history. And I said, whoa, I was there for that. I was there for that. I was there for that. Okay, so I, I have a lot of choices from Kirk Gibson to the Cubs winning the World Series. Like, there's a, I've seen a lot of fantastic stuff. The Red Sox busting the curse. But I, I tell people all the time, Game 6, 2011 World Series is the greatest baseball game ever played. And the reason, Dodd, is the team that won that game the Cardinals trailed five different times and they won. They were one strike away from losing in two different innings and they won. And if they hadn't won the game, they lose the World Series. But instead, they, they found a way to win thanks to David Freeze. And, you know, the card, we've looked up a lot of stuff on that game. The Cardinals have played thousands of games in the history of their franchise. How many do you think they won after trailing five different times? None. None. Never. never. So, but they picked that night, that game, to do that thing. And when David Freeze hits the home run that ends that game, I can't even begin to describe the goosebumps, but I, it, it would fit into a category that I use every once in a while when something like that happens. As the ball leaves the bat and it's flying through the night, your brain suddenly has the ability to stop time, I swear, because you, you, there's, that, there's that millisecond where you realize what you're watching and what's going to happen when that baseball comes back to earth. And uh, it really feels like time freezes in that moment as you, and the goosebumps just pour, like the, the chill bumps envelop your whole body as you realize what you're watching. And that's the experience I had after that incredible night of baseball watching the David Freeze home run fly. Um, just an amazing night, an amazing moment, an amazing sensation. And how lucky was I to be there? Is there a story behind the story on that one that you that sticks out with you? Uh, like, what was the clubhouse like? What was it trying to write on deadline? What was it like, this, what was yeah, it like there was, to be a writer there? You know, there was a sense of disbelief in that room. And... You know, my memories of, of that don't just encompass that night, but also encompass the next night when they win the World Series in Game 7. And that next night, just talking to, to Lance Berkman and Albert Pujols and Mark McGuire, who was uh, coaching that team, about what it was like to have won Game 6, go home, try to digest what happened and then come back and win game seven. And, you know, I, 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 David Freeze told me he, he finally got home and he just laid in bed all night thinking about the, the game he just played. Because he also, hey, he also hit the ball that Nelson Cruz didn't catch for the triple with two outs in the ninth inning. Okay? That's right, yeah. Uh, and right. couldn't get any of it out of his head. And I remember Mark McGuire 
talk to me about just walking around town in St. Louis the next day. Pretty recognizable guy, Mark McGuire, right? And people, everybody wanting to stop him and talk to him about the experience of watching that game and what it was like to be in the dugout for that game. And Lance Berkman, very similar stories. Lance Berkman got the hit in the 10th inning when they were one strike away. And I remember him describing that baseball kind of, he didn't hit it hard, just kind of floating over the infield and him him trying to digest that he just did that. You know, there's a, you know, we think baseball players, they're, you know, they're kind of robotized and they do what they do and this is what they expect to do. But that this was one of those moments in time when nobody could have possibly expected to do that. And that was not just us feeling it, it was them feeling it. They lived to a complete out-of-body experience. And so I always like to, to ask players to describe that feeling when those things happen. And that's how you get those quotes. You know, they want to talk about that. You don't just ask them what pitch, you, what pitch they hit. They ask, I ask them what you just asked me. You know, what's the backstory? What was it like? Because there, you're going to put the reader, the viewer, the listener in the same place that the person who did that. Right. And that's what our jobs were all about. Yeah. And I can tell you another thing that I've done since I got to ESPN and I'm still doing at The Athletic. You know, the newspaper business isn't what it used to be, <laughs> but newspapers still print. So newspaper writers still have deadlines. And that means they can't spend a lot of time in the clubhouse. After those games, I have lots of time. <laughs> I, you, know, I'm, right. yeah. my, you know, I'm, I'm writing uh, for websites and it, these, these things that I write are going to reverberate through cyberspace. And so I try to outlast everyone in the room. I try to make them throw me out because that's <laughs> how you get to talk to people. It might not be just me and them, it might be two or three other people, but we that's when you get the good stuff that nobody else has. And I was at the Steve Bartman game. You know, I'm sorry if any Cubs fans are listening, but, you know, I'd seen the Marlins. I I, I saw them win, I think it was 14 games that September and October, um, following them around. And, you know, they, they won one miracle game after another. They thought they were, they just thought no matter what happened, they were going to win the 2003 Marlins. And I got to know some of those guys really well. You know, Mike Lowell and Jeff Conine and Andy Fox. And just, there was a, a whole group in there. And they, they'd win these games. And I again, I'd make them throw me out of the clubhouse. And after the Bartman game, I was in there. And it was really pretty much just me talking to that group. And so there's nobody else there, just me and them. And Andy Fox was sitting in his locker. And he looked up and he said to Mike Lowell, Mikey, what just happened, man? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they won a game. They couldn't win. There's no way they were going to win that game. And so like, those are the moments that make it worth the, the, all the sleep deprivation of October for me. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, that's the, the child. It's like the inner child comes out, right? Baseball is all about how did you feel when you were a kid and you first started loving the game and, and you had that and you wanted to be a writer and you became that and you became a broadcaster and honored at the Hall of Fame. I think you've always maintained that childhood curiosity and enjoyment of the game and it's come through in all of your reporting. 
And I appreciate uh, I that. Thank you. I don't want to throw you out <laughs> of our tavern here, but the lights are on. They're, they're making us pay the check. I will collect the, the bill here, but I really appreciate this. has been fantastic, Jason. It's been a real, real treat just to talk baseball and and what it was like to cover it all these years. Well, Todd, uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation immensely. Um, you know, thanks for letting me tell all my crazy stories. <laughs> and uh, it's, always, it's always fun to, uh, to tell them to an audience that, that, that appreciates hearing them. Uh, I couldn't be more honored that you included me and I uh, really had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.